Uh, it is a great joy for Sue and I to be with you again this year. Uh, we had a, an extremely encouraging time with you last year. One of the things we appreciated was the way in which uh, so many of you just spent time with us around the, the meals, uh, the tables, just talking and catching up. I think there are probably about half of you we, uh, we know from last year and about half that are new this year would be, be my guess, although that may just be my accelerating and diminishing memory as I get older. But uh, So we'd love to meet those of you we didn't meet last year as well. What I'd like to do is to, uh, to pray as we begin. You'll have these uh, booklets in front of you. If you open to the... Uh, Page seven, I think it is. You'll see an outline of the first talk. Uh, that'll, uh, you might be a note taker, in which case that'll be handy for you. If you're not a note taker, it might be handy for you to try and work out what I'm doing. If you get lost at any stage or uh, uh, that sort of thing, so uh, that, that may be useful. And great to have your Bibles open. We'll be flitting around in the Bibles just a bit. Uh, we've had that passage from 2 Corinthians 5 read, uh, but we will be moving in in different spots. Let me pray. And then uh, we'll, we'll tuck into God's word again. Now, Father, we thank you so much for your great love and mercy towards us in your Son. And Father, our desire is that as we reflect on this word, uh, we won't hear my voice, uh, but rather we'll hear your voice. We'll hear you speak to us. And that we'll know it is your voice. And we'll delight to both hear, uh, to uh, Understand that you might enable us to do that and that you might bring conviction from your word into our lives. Our Father, be gracious to us, we pray. Help us to trust and believe you, especially in this whole area of the forgiveness we have from you and the impact of that in our lives. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the experiences I was reminded of uh, coming here to KL was the driving experience on your roads. Uh, that is quite a, an adventure, really. It, uh, it's still like you, in KL, like you take your life into your hands every time you get into a car. Uh, not so bad in a car, actually. I really feel for those guys on the motorbikes. I think that they, they have a death wish, as far as I can tell. And the, uh, the road rules in KL seem to be... Uh, the oldest car wins. Uh, you know, if you've got a newer car, you give way to the older cars because they're not as worried about the damage to their cars. That's, that's one rule. And, uh, and if you want to stay alive longer, drive a car, not a bike, I think is roughly the way I've worked it out. And uh, the traffic lights, they're there is just sort of guidance, really, not meant to be obeyed, just sort of a, an indicator of something that might be handy to do. In Adelaide, we're much more... Um, uh, systematised in the way in which we drive. Uh, Adelaide's quite a polite place. People tend to give way to each other. You don't barge in. You, 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 no, you first. No, you first. Yeah, it's much more like that, really, in Adelaide. And uh, it reminds me, though, of an occasion when I was taking my family to school. My kids were no younger, and I was driving them to school. We had a big old van, very old, and we were driving along, and I wanted to get into a right-hand lane to make a right-hand turn. So I thought, I've got plenty of space, you know, pulled over into the right lane and I drove up to the lights. We all stopped at the lights. At which point, the guy in the car behind me, do you have road rage here in KL? Is that a problem? Yeah, okay. Guy, guy in the car behind me got out. Uh, I could see him in the mirror. I thought, whoa. <laughs> he got out, came around to the window of my van and knocked on the van, and he was, you know, frothing at the mouth. He was really angry. About 10 years older than me, you know, so really old, and, 
he sort of thumped on the window and I sort of went down the window and I said, yes. And this is how it went. He said, I got up this morning really early. I left myself plenty of time to have breakfast without having to rush. I left myself plenty of time to get into my car to drive to work at a leisurely pace. And I'm driving along in my car and then you in your dirty green van cut me off. Now, I, because I'm a sensitive man, okay, I, I perceived that he was angry. It's true, true, I picked it up just like that. But let me say, the more he spat in my face, <laughs> the more angry I became, you know. I was really, he was really, I thought, just because you got a newer car than me, you know, I let you plenty of space, what's going on here, you know. And I'm seeing it, peak hour traffic, really crowded on the roads, around the middle and there's sort of a little island between the traffic, you know. He's standing on this island, and uh, I'm standing, all the cars on the other side whizzing past, you know. And, you know, for just a moment I thought, if I just sort of open the door and go, the problem is solved, you know. <laughs> just sort of, and I thought, no, nah, it'd probably be a bit traumatic for the kids in the back seat and uh, all that sort of thing. Friends, I'm, I'm talking about the whole issue of forgiveness uh, this weekend. Forgiveness. And let me say from the outset, to forgive is actually unusual. I think we live in a world of non-forgiveness. We live in a, uh, what I've heard one friend describe as an ungrace world. Not a grace world, but an ungrace world. In our world we bear grudges. We want revenge. We want justice. It is a world of uh, unforgiveness. We live in a world of road rage, a society where relationships break down. And normally when they break down, they're not mended. That's the way in which they stay. We live in a world when we go and see a film and if the bad guy, you know, kills someone at the beginning of the film, the film doesn't end with the good guy saying, I forgive you from the heart. Who's been to a film like that? No one has. The film ends with the good guy getting revenge. Right? That's the way our world thinks it is. The psyche of our world is the way in which this world operates. And yet I want to say to you that forgiveness is essential. As you you think, I mean we're a Christian group of ways, you think about, um, about God and the things that he takes most seriously, the sins that most offend him in this world, what would it be, do you think? Just for a moment, turn to the person next to you and just say to them, what do you think is the sin that upsets God most in this world? Right? I'll give you just 15 seconds each. What sin? Right? Just, just have a go. I can see from here if you're talking to each other. All right? The sin that upsets him most... Okay, I won't, I, won't, I won't get you to call them out, but I, I don't know, maybe you think of things like, like terrorism or uh, pedophilia, maybe murder. But can I actually say to you, for 
this group, your Christian people gathered here together, that one of the biggest things that offends God is when Christians are unforgiving. God hates that. Listen as I read from Matthew chapter 6, verses 14 and 15. Just listen in. For if you forgive men when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their sins, your Father will not forgive yours. Do you you hear the magnitude of what's being said here? How significant it is? Failure to forgive will exclude you from the kingdom of God. It will exclude you from heaven. That's extraordinarily serious, isn't it? That is a huge warning. And maybe even as I speak, you can think of an unforgiveness, an anger that just stirs within your heart. And maybe you're aware of someone that you you hold a grudge against that you haven't forgiven, you haven't dealt with. Uh, with that blockage in your relationship. You're aware of that anger. And sure, you've dealt with it uh, because we're all experienced at dealing with things and people offend us. What's the, what's the best way of dealing with it when someone you know, sins against you? The you know, best way of dealing with it? Well, you avoid them, don't you? you know, just work out a way of not having much to do with them. But friends, that is not the way God says to deal with sin. It's not the way God says to deal with your unforgiveness or your anger. And yet I suspect here in uh, Malaysia, as much as in Australia, that is the preferred method among Christians as well as among non-Christians in our world. We've taken our leaf from the world about how we deal with sin and offence against us. Or maybe as I raise this whole question of forgiveness, you're wondering if it actually is that simple. Because I take it most of you are pretty keen to serve Christ. And if you're like me, you'll know of situations where you've been sinned against, where someone's hurt you, and you've tried to forgive them. Or you've really worked at saying, God, give me that, that forgiving heart towards this person, and yet found yourself not doing that. And you, you know, next time you see them, it just flares up inside you. You might smile on the outside. You know, but inside you're just churning as you reflect on what they've done to you. And you think, what's, what's happened? I thought I forgave that person, and, you know, but I still feel so angry and stirred up every time I see them. Does it mean, if you feel angry, that you haven't forgiven them? Is that what it means? I mean, there are actually all sorts of questions that come up on this, this uh, matter of forgiveness, isn't there? Um, do you have to forgive everybody? Or is it only people who ask for forgiveness that you have to forgive? Um, when do you have to forgive everybody? You know, if someone breaks into your home and is killing your wife, at that point you'd be saying, look, I forgive you, brother, I forgive you. If then, or straight up, next day, when do you have to forgive somebody? How does it work in terms of those sort of responsibilities? The issues, it seems to me, are incredibly complex. Now, forgiveness is a complicated matter. It's not just a, uh, a series of tick boxes that you can go through and sort out. 
It involves our emotions. It involves um, things that stir uh, deep within us that can cause all sorts of all sorts of difficulties for us. I think we have to grapple with it. What I want to do with today, what I want to start with, is just to reflect on first principles with you in this session and then come back to the question of our forgiveness with one another. But to start with, I'm going to talk about our relationship with God because I think that's critical. You turn with me to Colossians chapter 3, verse 13. Colossians 3, verse 13. It's a passage that speaks about how we should live together in unity and harmony as God's people. Colossians chapter 3, verse 13. We're told, Bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. But especially this next section. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. Now friends, if we're to have any chance of understanding forgiveness and how it works, how it works with each other, we need to understand how God has forgiven us. Because God's pattern of forgiveness with us is the pattern of forgiveness that we need to employ when it comes to our relationships with each other. We need to come to terms with the character of God. I wonder if you turn with me back to Exodus chapter 34, verses 5 to 7, because in these verses we have a great statement, a summary statement of um, the very character of God, um, the nature of sin and forgiveness and how, how God deals with those. Uh, the background of these verses, Exodus 34, verses 5 to 7. The background is that Moses had asked uh, to see the glory of God. He wanted to see the very character or nature or essence of God, to see what God was like. So what God does is he, he self-discloses. He descends in a cloud and then speaks uh, to Moses. Uh, verses 6 and 7. The Lord passed in front of Moses, saying... The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Yet he doesn't leave the guilty unpunished. Now there are three three aspects of God's character that come out in these verses and they exist in tension together. Okay? Firstly, we read that God is compassionate, he's slow to anger, he's gracious, and he is abounding in love. Okay, God is not, he's not short-tempered, he's not prone to fits of violence, he, he's loving, he is faithful, he is generous. That's the first thing. The second is he forgives sin. Uh, sin explains God's anger towards people. Uh, sin is our rejection of God, and we'll come back to that. But the high point of God's love or his compassion and faithfulness that's spoken about in these verses is seen when he forgives sin or forgives rebellion against him. That's the second thing. First, he's compassionate, slow to anger, gracious, abounding in love. Secondly, he forgives sin. But thirdly, the guilty won't go unpunished. Now, God is lavish in forgiveness, we're told, and yet he's just and he punishes sin. 
Now, what's not clear here from Exodus 34 is how it can be both. How do you have a compassionate God who forgives sin and a God full of justice who punishes the guilty? How do they work? What is clear, though, from these verses is that if we're going to understand God's forgiveness, we actually need to understand sin. Because we need to have a clear sense of what needs forgiving. Okay, so coming to terms with sin, in the outline is point number two, if you're following that. Uh, I don't know about uh, here in Malaysia, but in Australia, sin has dropped out of our vocabulary. When you're in conversation, you know, over lunch with some friends at work, do you get into a good old chit-chat about sin, you know? Why don't we talk about sin this lunchtime? I don't know, it doesn't seem to happen much in Australia. It happen much here? Oh, I don't think so. Okay, sin, it's dropped out of the vocabulary, but also our understanding of what it is has diminished over the years because we haven't actually thought about it much. When sin is talked about, it's likely to be misunderstood. So when you're talking about someone who is a sinner, who does the average person in our culture think of? I think of people who've done serious things wrong. I think of the uh, the murderers or the the pedophiles or the bank robbers or the, you know, I mean, you sort of, they're the sinners. They're all over there. When we turn to the Bible, though, uh, the biblical definition of sin is really quite, quite different from that. Okay. Again, what I'd like you to do, just, uh, just to make sure you're still with me, I want to get you to talk to, not the person next to you, talk to someone different to the person you talked to last, last time. And I want you to come up with a one sentence definition of sin. Okay, one sentence definition of sin and share it with the person who isn't the person you talked to last time. Okay, it might mean you've got to move around a bit, but that's okay, you can do that. Right? One sentence definition of sin. You've got about, uh, I'll give you 45 seconds each, okay? Give it a shot. Okay. Definition of sin. I'm looking for a uh, one-sentence definition of sin. There's uh, 
Someone want to call out the definition for me? Give it a shot. If you feel embarrassed about your definition, just call out the definition of the person who talked to you. All right? give, give us theirs instead. Maybe, I'm sure they won't mind. That'll be fine. Okay, just call one out. Okay. Not obeying God? Okay, very helpful. Breaking his commandments? Any of his commandments? Okay, terrific. Not, not treating him rightly as king? Yeah, very good. Okay, that which sort of blocks our relationship with God. Yeah, absolutely. It's all very helpful actually. When you, even when you go to the New Testament, there are about five different words that are used for sin. So in, in, in English, which is the only language I speak, I don't speak four languages, I admire anyone who speaks more than one really, but... Uh, uh, how many of you speak more than one language? Uh, this is very embarrassing. Uh, thank you. Uh, yeah, oh well, that's life. <laughs> I'm just Australian, you'll have to forgive me for that. In the Greek language, five different words are used uh, for sin. We only have one in English. It can mean uh, miss the mark or unrighteousness or trespass or lawlessness but here's the thing when when we naturally think of sin I think most people think about the way we do things that destroy relationships with each other okay we tend to have the, a very airtight world view on sin uh, the cultural or um, the, the things we do in, in society that destroy other people in different ways and we're very aware of those aren't we because when we do things to, you know, if I think if I, if I act in a way that uh, destroys something in my child, I feel that very deeply when my flaws, my sin, uh, flows over into that. When I do things that cut across my relationship with Sue, I'm really aware of it. I feel it deeply. But here's the thing. We don't tend to think as much by nature about the way sin destroys our relationship with God. A couple of people mentioned definitions about that, not treating God as king, that which blocks our relationship with God. But that is the prime way in which the Bible thinks about sin. Sin also has implications for our relationships with one another, but first and foremost, it destroys our relationship with God. I wonder if you turn with me to Psalm 51. This session we're going to wander around the Bible a bit. It's to, to keep you alert, really. But uh, no, it's not. Not. But with Psalm 51 is a great psalm, a psalm of uh, of repentance of King David. Uh, it's, it, it's obviously set around the uh, the events of his sin with Bathsheba. Uh, the context is that uh, David has stayed at home when his army has gone to the front to fight. One, is, one of his soldiers is away and uh, David spies his wife one night bathing. A beautiful woman and he's attracted to her. He has an affair with her. She gets pregnant. David arranges to kill her husband in fairly uh, malicious and underhanded sort of way. And then in due course he marries the man's wife. 
And here in Psalm 51, he's reflecting on his sin. Now, think of your King David, and you've been confronted with your sin. Okay? You've slept with another man's wife. You've then arranged to try and make it so he will come back and sleep with that woman so he thinks the baby is hers because she gets pregnant. That doesn't work, so you arrange to have the man killed. And then there's the whole thing of the fact that he is king and he's betrayed the whole nation. All right? Now look at verse 4 of Psalm 51. He's reflecting on his sin and this is what he says to God. Against you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Against you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. You know, and I read that and I think, hey, 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 what about uh, Bathsheba? He ripped her off, used his power over her to sleep with her. Now, what about Uriah? I mean, not only betrayed him by sleeping with his wife, but got him killed as well. Now, what about the nation? You know, against you only have I sinned God. Well, I don't know where you were, David, but, you know, you seem to have missed a few things here, buddy. But you get the point he's making? You see, first and foremost, all sin that manifests itself in our lives is against God. It's against the one who has made us to live in relationship with him. And all sin is fundamentally a rejection of his rule in our lives. That's what sin is. And you know, the worst and the most offensive thing about sin is it actually does offend against the one who made us and who will judge us at the end of the age. It's easy to see the impact of my sin on other people. It's visibly before me. But the reality is my anger, my greed, my selfishness, my evil thoughts... They all reflect my failure to treat God as God. That's why so much of the Bible speaks about sin as being a rebellion against God. Especially when you come to the New Testament, that's the way it's defined. When uh, children are born, uh, how many of you are parents? Just if you're parents. How many of you are children? No, that's okay, I'm only kidding. Um, when, uh, when kids are born... What, learn, what word do they learn first? Right, mum or dad? Mum. Yeah, generally mum. I reckon it's because mums spend more time with their kids going mum, 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 mum. You know, they haven't got much choice really. But uh, I'm not sure if that's it or not. But uh, they tend to, I think, say mum first. Okay. Uh, try this one. Yes or no? No. It's always no. How do they do that, right? Every child born always says no first. And I think it might be a simple word to say, or it might just reflect the rebellious nature of the human heart when you're born. I think that's the whole idea. When it comes to God, sin is saying no to God. All forms of sin are saying no to God. If you go to a place like Romans 8, verse 7, listen to the way it describes people. It says, The sinful mind is hostile to God. It doesn't submit to God's law, nor can it do so. 
it's not just our, our actions or our behaviour or our omissions that are offensive against God. What we're being told here is that people by nature are rebellious in their very spirits, their mind, their very, the very essence of their being is turned against God. By nature, that is who we are. We reject the one who has given us life. And here's the thing. That rejection of God has a consequence. Sin is not a very popular thing in Australia to talk about, uh, but if you want something that's less popular, then it would be judgment, the judgment of God. You know, we don't have many discussions around the water cooler over morning tea about judgment either. don't know about you guys, but it's not, it's not a very popular idea at all, actually. Listen again to Exodus 34, verse 7. God does not leave the guilty unpunished. He doesn't leave the guilty unpunished. But if we went to Romans chapter 6, verse 23, it's told there the wages of sin is death. Or if you come to a place like Ephesians chapter 2, you know the way it describes every single person who was born into this world? Dead in our sins. Dead in our trespasses against God. Now, that isn't popular. I Sometimes in Adelaide I go and speak to the ordination training group. So these are people who have done theological training. They've been ordained as ministers in the Anglican Church of Australia and they're working in Adelaide. I was brought along to talk about evangelism with this group and to try and encourage them in that. And what I did was I went to the book of Ephesians and just said, look, if you're going to tell people about the gospel, what you need to do is to have a clear idea of what the gospel is. You know, I went to Ephesians chapter 1 and talked about the grace and the glory of God, his initiative you know, to actually have mercy on us in his son. I went to chapter 2 and talked about the fact that by nature we're all in rebellion against God. We're all dead in our trespasses and sin and we deserve the wrath and the judgment of God. At that point I got interrupted by this group. And uh, there was a person in the group who was ordained and said to me, I don't really know much about uh, Ephesians because I don't like what Paul writes, so I don't read it. Uh, but, you know, I completely reject the notion that God judges anybody. Um, you know, that's not what God is like. He doesn't do that sort of thing. We had a little discussion about that after that moment. That is the way in which our world thinks. But God's word is so clear What we deserve is the eternal separation from the one who has made us and against whom all of us, by nature, are sinners and have rejected. At this point, Christianity seems a bit negative, doesn't it? Don't you reckon? It was Nietzsche who made this comment about Christians. He said, Christianity needs sickness. Making sick is the true hidden objective of the church and its whole system of salvation procedures. Sickness. It's actually quite true, isn't it? Not the making sick, we do that all by ourselves as we reject God. But isn't it true in Matthew chapter 9 Jesus said he came to call the 
sick. Not the well. That's true. He came to deal with this problem of sin sickness. That was the whole nature of his ministry. No, but the reality is we need to be aware of our need for forgiveness. We need to be aware that there's a problem. About um, 12 months ago, I was finding that when I was uh, preaching and stuff like that, I looked down to read the, the text of the Bible and I was just having trouble reading it and I thought maybe you know, my mind was going and I was getting all confused in my doddery old age or something. I wasn't quite sure what was happening. Uh, but someone very wisely suggested maybe I should get my eyes checked uh, and uh, I'd had the same glasses for about 15 years or something and they said maybe my eyes had changed in that time. And sure enough, I went to the doctor and he said, you really do need a new prescription. You know? So I got these new glasses a couple of weeks later and put them on, multifocals, very impressive, aren't they? And uh, I could read again and I could see people. I could do all sorts of clever things. You know? And uh, it brought everything into sharp focus. There is a sense in which that is what we need as we read God's word. He needs to give us that sharp focus on who we are. And do you know what the Bible says to every single one of us? In sharp focus, what you are by nature is a rebel against God. And by nature, all you deserve is his judgment and his wrath poured out upon you. That is who we are by nature. And friends, if we stopped at that point, that awareness of our sin is absolutely crippling. For sin without forgiveness can only be destructive. It can only lead to the deepest and darkest of depressions. And yet also, if you have no sense of sin, if you live denying that reality, then you live in a make-believe world. You have to restructure the universe to fit around your own sense of wanting to self-justify your behaviour. Again, in Adelaide, I caught up with the chaplain in my, um, the school that my ch- children would go to, an Anglican minister of the gospel again, uh, and we sat down to talk. And the reason we sat down to talk was because he got into a bit of a fight with one of my kids at school um, about the gospel. And uh, I thought my son was probably right and uh, this guy was wrong so I thought I should just have a bit of a chat with him and so we we met for coffee and we bounced around a few things together and as we talked um, I said yeah what what is your view on what the Bible says about about sin he said oh it's such a negative word I never use it in fact I don't like the whole idea I think that the Bible doesn't really talk about being sinners at all really so I just flatly rejected that and I said, do you, what do you think about Jesus' death for sin? What do you think about that? And he said, oh, look, that's an abhorrent doctrine, really. The idea that Jesus should have died so that, so that uh, he could pay the penalty for other people's failure to treat. You know, no, 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 I totally reject that. Uh, out and out. You see, what he's done is if, if he rejects his own sinfulness and says by nature that isn't his nature or the nature of reality in people's lives you then have to reconstruct everything you see you have, to, you have to change the whole nature of the gospel to fit around yourself and God to fit around you 
That's the way in which it works. Without a clear understanding of sin and our need for God's forgiveness, that's your only option. But fortunately, God deals with our sin. Come with me to that passage from uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, the one that was read for us at the start of this session. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. You see, God, God does, doesn't deal with our sin by looking the other way. Oops, they mucked up again. I'll just turn a blind eye to it or pretend like it, like it hasn't happened. What we're told here in this passage is that God reconciles sinners to himself. Reconciliation is the idea of a completely restored relationship. You know, when I, um, uh, something comes up in a friendship that you have, uh, sometimes that, that can wreck a friendship and then you sort it out together. The friendship's never really quite what it used to be. You ever had a friendship like that where something happens? You sort of get it back together, but it's not quite the same. You know? That's where there's, there might be forgiveness, but lack of reconciliation in the relationship, proper reconciliation. Here in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, it's the idea of a completely restored relationship with God, which I take it as always the goal of forgiveness. Where there is forgiveness, the goal of that, it's purposeful, is always restored relationship. Let me just read these verses and then make a couple of comments on them. I read from, uh, I might read from verse 16. So from now on we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore God's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Look there at verse 19. God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. Firstly, do you see that actually it is God who does the work of reconciliation? See, religion in this world, and you live in a multi-religious sort of society, uh, all religion works on the premise that we try and restore ourselves in the relationship with God. We do what's necessary to make God pleased with us. Here it's very clear, God is reconciling the world to himself. We can't do it, only God can do it. We've got no capacity. It's a bit like if, um, uh, say you had 10 credit cards, okay, and you had a 100,000 ringgit limit on your credit card in terms of the credit you could take up. And so you maxed out all 10 credit cards to the full maximum, right, which would be a million uh, ringgit that you're in debt under these credit cards. If some banker was dumb enough to let you have that number of credit cards, okay. 
And let's say your income. What's the average income of someone here in Malaysia? Just just average wage, it'll be about how many ring? How much? Uh, what's the average wage? Eight thousand US. So what's that about? Thirty thirty thousand ring? Yeah, about thirty thousand. Okay, let's say so you got a million in debt. Okay, and your average your wage is let's say it's twenty five thousand ringgit a year. Okay, how long your ring is going to take you to pay off that million bucks in debt? You're never going to do it. You can't even pay off the interest. You just go sliding down the slope further and further into debt. It's just impossible. That, that's the nature of our, our relationship with God. There is a debt there that we we can never sort out. It just gets worse and worse and worse. And we need God to do something about it. How does God do it? Did you notice the phrase that comes up in those verses? How does God reconcile the world to himself? He does it in Christ. In Christ. Here is the means by which our debt to God, our sin is dealt with. And it's explained in verse 21. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. How does Christ become sin for us? Uh, Actually, there are lots of aspects of that we could explore, but the major idea here in this verse is the idea of, of substitution, of substitution. When my kids were little, I used to always be playing a cricket and uh, you know what cricket is you may not cricket football you know sporting games with balls always out in the backyard I've got a couple of boys and uh, they would always be breaking windows right always and uh, you know what happened they would break the window and I would have to pay for it because they, they were, what I would say they were children of no substance that's what I would say they, they didn't have any money right I had the money They committed the crime, I did the time. You know, well, I paid the debt. Anyway, that's the way in which it works. I was reading um, about this shopping centre in Glasgow. Uh, They, at Christmas time, they introduced a sort of a surrogate husband arrangement. Uh, How many of you men here love going shopping? Uh, Some of you do. Put you in your hand, Sam. Right? Real men don't like going shopping, okay? I'm only kidding. I'm only kidding, brother. Most men actually aren't great shoppers. I'm a terrible shopper. Uh, And I've got the attention span of, you know, the back end of an ant when it comes to shopping. I I just, I'm no good. You know, I look at the first thing, let's buy it, you know. But this shopping centre in Glasgow, they set up this arrangement where wives could go along to shop and they could book their husbands in to this sort of recreation centre and they'd book their husband in and they'd be given a surrogate husband who would go shopping with them. And uh, this man would, you know, do all the things that a, you know, a truly devoted husband would do. He'd say, oh, that dress looks beautiful on you, you know, and uh, I think that colour would be better than that. Oh, that's an idea. But, oh, you're looking for this sort of gift, you know, the surrogate husband, the substitute. And then once they'd done all their shopping, they'd go back to the centre and drop him off and get their own husband who'd been reading magazines and looking at sporting stuff and stuff. like. I, I thought it was a great idea, actually. <laughs> We try to get uh, people in Australia to pick it up, but no one has yet. Here is the idea of substitution. Right? Christ, instead of me, bore the judgment of God for my sin. He substituted for me. 
Now let me say, some people find this doctrine distasteful. I have, as I said, uh, people in the Anglican ministry in Adelaide who say this is akin to the idea of uh, child abuse. You know, the idea that God would send his son to die when he was innocent to pay the penalty for my sin when I deserve to pay for it. They say, oh, that's just... God could never be guilty of child abuse. Do you know what I say to that? Those people have no idea of the depravity of their own sin, the offence against God, and that they need a saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ, to pay their sin for them. We all do. Here is God's provision for us. For if you reject Jesus... The only way you can do it is if you minimise your own sin. Pretend that it's something less than what it is. It turns God into sort of a moral jelly. You know, it just absorbs things and doesn't care about our sin. It denies it, it minimises it, it covers it up. And if you take that line, then you can't admit to your sin. Because if you did it, it'd only crush you. But God in his kindness has provided his son so that we might be rescued. God forgives on the basis of what Christ has done. The reason I've laboured this up front, and friends, I know that you know the things I've been talking about. See Peter 1, it's interesting, when Peter's writing to uh, the church there, he says, what I'm going to do is remind you about things that you already know and you're already doing and putting into practice. And when you read that in 2 Peter chapter 1, you go, well, why is, why is he bothering? I mean, if they already know it and they're already doing it, he says, because I want you to remember. Once I'm gone, I want you to remember these truths. The reason I've laboured this point about the nature of sin, the nature of our need for forgiveness, and what God has done about that sin for us in Christ, is because I want you to remember it. And Christians are prone to forget. I want to remind you of this truth. I want to remind you about it for your life, but I want to remind you about it for this weekend. For as we start to move on and talk about the nature of forgiveness in our relationships and how that works, if you forget what God has done for you in Christ, then you're lost. You have no hope of being able to work out forgiveness with one another unless you keep remembering what God has done for you in his son. I remember reading about an incident that occurred in in South Africa maybe 15, 18 years ago. It occurred in a church at St James during the time when apartheid was being sorted out. It was the 25th of July 1993. Terrorists broke into the St James congregation and opened fire on the Christians that were meeting there. Eleven were killed and 55 were really seriously injured. At the subsequent amnesty trials, the people who were the victims of those sort of crimes were invited to say something at those trials to tell the people who committed crimes against them how they felt. Darby Ackerman, his wife Marita, she was killed in the, uh, one of the 11 that was killed when those terrorists opened fire in that church. He went along to the trial of the men who were found guilty of those murders. 
and he was invited to say something. He stood up in the court and he asked the three men in front of him whether they wanted to be forgiven by him for what they'd done to his wife. And each one of them stood up and asked for his forgiveness. And he said, I forgive you to every single one of them. Afterwards he was asked by the press why he did it. And this is what he said. He said, I forgive them unconditionally because they asked for it. That is, he said, I as a Christian, I know the unconditional nature of God's forgiveness to me and I cannot withhold it from the men who killed my wife. Quite extraordinary, isn't it? You know, as I read that story, I thought, I thought, could I do it? You know, if I was in a situation where Sue's life was taken in those circumstances, could I front up to the people who did it and forgive them like that man did? What's the worst crime you can think of? The worst sin? You know, the Holocaust? Twin Towers? Genocide that occurred in Rwanda not that long ago? Or maybe at the individual level, maybe you're just horrified by the sexual sin that's committed against a minor by an adult. Maybe that sickens you to your very stomach. If I was to ask you, what's your worst sin? I'm not going to get you to share it. (laughs) But if I asked you to think about what is your worst offence, my guess is probably most of it can recall it. Most of us can recall it actually fairly quickly. Something will come to our minds something that actually still eats at us in some way. Friends, can I say, we are all guilty of the worst crime, and that is that we have rejected God's sovereign grace towards us in his Son. And if you are a Christian here today, and you can say that you're one of his, It is because God in his extraordinary mercy towards you has said, I have sent my son to die for you despite your extraordinary rebellion against me. Now do you know and do you feel the weight of that reality? Well, you know, God wants us to be blown away by that truth. And it's as you appreciate the reality of God's forgiveness for you, as you understand it, it is only then that you'll be able to work it out in your relationships with other people. And it is only then that you will know that when it comes to the forgiveness of others, you have no choice but to forgive.
if you know the forgiveness of God. How could you not forgive? Do you feel the weight of the forgiveness that you have in Christ? What I'd like to do is I'd like to pray, but I want to give you just a minute just to dwell on it for yourselves, just to think about some of the things we've been reflecting on together. Ask God to bring that, um, that conviction of his mercy and grace home powerfully to your own heart and mind. Bring it home afresh as we start this weekend. Let me just give us uh, a minute or so in silence just to dwell quietly and then I'll pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you do not count our sins against us but rather you count them against your Son, the Lord Jesus. And Father, we're, at one level we're overwhelmed by uh, the knowledge of our sinfulness and yet that just brings into sharper relief the extraordinary nature of your forgiveness for us and your Son and the generosity you've shown us in him. Father, we pray that we will understand what it means to be reconciled to you, to know that it's purely a work of your grace and kindness towards us. Father, let that truth work its way in our minds and our hearts, keep stirring us up so that we understand it in a richer and more significant way. And Father, I pray that this weekend, uh, for many of us here in this room, that this truth will become fresher, uh, more significant, uh, a real thing that is... um, uh, brought more prominently to our minds and at the level of our, our emotions and our feelings. And Father, we ask it will be a rich weekend as we explore the nature of this, this forgiveness, your mercy, as we think about relationships with other people, as we think about the fact that because we are forgiven, that all the guilt that goes with that is completely dealt with in Christ. And Father, help us to know and experience that at the deepest level. Uh, Father, we pray you'll go before us, that you'll help us to be people who know that once we were dead in our sins, but now we have been made alive in Christ. Help us to live as those people who are living people, forgiven people, people who are destined to spend eternity with you. Help us to live in the light of that truth, the way in which we respond to you, the way in which we treat each other, the way in which we serve you in this world. Father, refresh us in those truths we pray this weekend. In your kindness we pray this. In the name of your Son, the Lord Jesus. Amen.